This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? I am. All right, guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get into it with my friend, Julia Sexton, I got to talk to you about a few things. One is I've been getting a lot of nice messages about you guys using Axe Wax, and you're happy with the results. You're happy with how it finishes. You're happy with how it smells and looks and all the rest. You're using it on your hammers, your wood, your steel, your Damascus, your knives. You know why? Because it's great. It's all natural and food safe, and it's going to be a great finish for your stuff. And if you go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get 10% off. And if you happen to be in the UK, go to UK Knife Supplies, and Toby is honoring Knife Talk 10, and it's doing a nice job, but I want you to do something. He's taking on the chin to do Knife Talk 10, or Knife Talk 10, Full Blast 10. He's taking on the chin. He's not making any money off this, so I want you to, if you're going to go to UK Knife Supply, I want you to buy something else from him because he's doing a nice thing. So go to axwax.us, put in promo code Full Blast 10, get yourself 10% off. The next thing is... You guys got to really start thinking about your your health. And part of your health is getting enough sleep. You're going to work, you're going to your shop, you're making whatever you're making, and then you come home, you got to do all this stuff, and then instead of relaxing, you're, and you're dealing with all these stupid DMs from people who are interested in the things that you want. They want to buy your products, but you have to deal with the DMs because you have no way of getting them the information. So what I want you to do is I want you to really reconsider getting yourself a good website. And if you go to akinteractive.com slash fullblast and put in, you just fill it out, and Andreas Kalani will take care of you, will figure out what you need, and he will get you the website that you want. And if you already have a website and you just want to get it zhuzhed up, he'll take care of that too. I actually just saw, if you want to see one example of his work, he just did a website for Charlie Lionheart, which is, I think it's charlielionheart.com. It's amazing. Super easy to read. It looks great. He knew what to do. He did a good job for Charlie. Andreas Kalani is the man. Definitely go get yourself a website for him, or if you want some consultation, go to him, or if you want to do like some sort of, um, you know, if you want to do like get some graphics done, he'll do that for you too. So Andreas Kalani is the man, akinteractive.com slash full blast. And the last thing is I want to thank Total Boat. Total Boat sent me this amazing box filled with resins and epoxies and glues and, and hardeners and all this great stuff. And they're going to do, we're going to do something with them and we're going to have some uh, discounts coming up. So Total Boat, it does a great job. They do products for your boat repair. But if you're a maker and you need some sort of epoxy or you need some sort of, you know, something that's waterproof, why not use the Total Boat? And I'm actually going to be using their two-part epoxy on to glue up some handle scales pretty soon so once again thanks total boat guys go get yourself some total boat and hopefully we'll have some discounts in the future okay now after all that's said and done i'm with my friend julia sexton is an incredible writer I met her a few years ago. She did an amazing piece on me, but she's a fantastic writer she also happens to be the editor-in-chief of edible hudson Valley, Edible Westchester, Edible Brooklyn, Edible Manhattan. She's taken over, everybody. Julia, how are you? How are I'm you? well. I'm great. I'm happy to be here. 
you, I appreciate you suffering through the technical uh, juggernaut that is, you know, this this podcast, and you were very thoughtful to hang in there. How have you been? I'm good. I'm great. You know, uh, doing my thing, working very hard, but enjoying my work. Now, do you consider yourself a writer or a food writer? I'm a writer. You know, the thing I'm I'm uncomfortable with is being a journalist. I know, you know, I'm not dropping you know, into war-torn countries or doing um, what I think is real journalism. But um, I think of myself as a writer, you know, a writer who edits for money. Yeah. Because uh, there's no money in writing, <laughs> <laughs> just to be honest. One of the interesting things, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about you recently because you do, you because you're, you're so involved in the food scene and you're, you do a lot of writing, most of your writing is, you know, food related. I started to wonder about that because when I read your writing, mm-hmm. there's such a, you have such this, I, I was, I was talking to my wife about it last night and I was talking about how you, your the, the words that you use. And I'm obviously in this conversation, I'm, I'm going to lose all, you know, perfectly good vocabulary and I'm just going <laughs> to chalk it up, but there's almost like a viscous quality to your work. And I say that as a compliment because you, you, you paint this incredible picture in the things that you write. Well, you know, I was a cook, right? You know, I was a cook I do know for, for years. So, you know, it, I'm not coming to this work necessarily as uh, somebody who had, came from a writing background. I, I came to this work as a cook uh, who happened to have an English degree. So, what came first? Well, I thought I was going to be a teacher. You know, I was. I was. Uh, I had all of these applications to graduate school on a desk, and they were. Um, they were just like really weighted and heavy and I was dreading it, uh, to go to graduate school for English. Uh, but I fell in with this crazy crowd of cooks and I've been a lifelong cook. I mean, I cooked for my family growing up. I was like the, the 10 year old standing on a chair stirring stuff. Um, but, uh, I fell into this like pirate ship of cooks and I just never got off. Huh. Uh, until I saw all of the bankruptcies and the alcohol abuse and the divorces. And I was like, you know, I think I might go back to this writing thing. When you were younger, were you doing a lot of writing? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd always written stuff. It took a while for me. I think, you know, to be honest, it was Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. Uh, when he wrote that that story for The New Yorker, a million years ago, uh, that really inspired me because I saw that somebody who spent the last 15 years in a tile kitchen cooking actually had stuff to say. Um, and you know, it, it's, I think I started writing small pieces about, you know, my life as a cook. And then I just started kind of coming through the back door in journalism, I ended up writing about people, people like you. When you were doing the, uh, when you were cooking, I, mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out how did you decide to go professionally into cooking? I never made the decision. It just happened. Um, as, as much of my life happens that way. Uh, you know, I, I was supposed to go to graduate school. My then boyfriend, now husband, um, 
was at Yale for graduate school, and I think the competition just disabled me. I just couldn't, I knew I wasn't going to get into Yale. And I was paralyzed. I didn't want to say that I got into a graduate program in, you know, some shitty place. So I think that might, that might have been some of it, you know, just intercouple, you know, uh, competition. But also I knew that, you know, my father was a professor. Uh, my husband was slated to become a professor. I thought I was going to have to be a professor too. And I just didn't want to do it. So I ended up cooking and it was it paid enough that I couldn't really give it up you hmm. know I couldn't ever like step out of it and do something else but you didn't go to culinary school nope didn't so what so back I just want to back up what was your father a professor of American history that's intense it is was there so, so, so education and, and, and uh, for, for further education was a really important thing in your growing up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in a house full of books, you know, uh, everybody was really well educated. You know, all of my siblings are well educated. I, you know, I'm reasonably well educated. Um, but, uh, I just didn't, you know, this is at a time when, um, the profession of teaching in colleges really kind of tanked. Uh, yeah. You know, these stories of professors on food stamps, that's real. You know, uh, adjunct professors get paid probably worse than writing. <laughs> and wow. uh, they do a lot of work and, you know, teach four or five courses and still can't make ends meet. It's very hard to get a an endowed position in a very good college to make them, you know, you'd have to get tenure, which is difficult to do. And, um, it just, it's a tough, you know, my husband who has a PhD in the history of art is not teaching. He works for a company that, um, uh, deals with historic buildings. So he is sort of the architectural historian on that team. That's right. He and I talked about, uh, he and I were talking about metalwork at one point, I think. Right. I think he had some deep pull of some, ar- you know, archaic, ancient guy. Um, yeah, he knows all that stuff. See, when I, the interesting thing about being a writer is, number one, it's being able to express yourself. And it's also to express something that's happening that you, when I was in art school, I remember Mm -hmm. that one thing that my teacher used to say to me is don't draw what you know, draw what you see. So when you're writing, that is the same thing. So I would imagine that once you became a cook, writing about the food scene, having this very good understanding about it really was a very easy transition for you. It was pretty easy. And I'm lucky that I made that transition before... uh, what I'm seeing now in writers sort of post uh, Instagram, post uh, influencer, uh, you know, post that whole moment in food is that the writing, the vocabulary that people use to describe food or places or even people is so reduced right now. Um, you know, uh, awesome. <laughs> it's used a lot. <laughs> awesome, you know, mouthfeel. You know, like there there are these words that are just repeated again and again and again because that's what they learned. And that's you mean how like they learned. Flavor profiles. Flavor profiles, um, 
you know, unctuous. <laughs> you know, I could tell you a million of them. <laughs> do you uh, think that? Do you think that? I mean, have you noticed this incredible dumbing down of the way people communicate? Yeah, I have. I mean, uh, I have. I think it's a multi-pronged um, problem. I think that people are now educated about food on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, I think that um, food writing ha- it doesn't pay well, so people don't work very hard to write their articles. Um, and I think that uh, what I'm what I'm beginning to see is that I can look at a writer who uh, has incredible clips, you know, has been on, you know, in great magazines. And in the beginning, I would hire that writer just on the basis of clips and seeing their the work that has been published. But what I'm finding is that there's probably some slob like me, an editor, rewriting that work <laughs> before it gets before it gets you know published. So uh, you know there there is a general uh, paucity of really. Of, of writers who really work far, hard for little money. This is very interesting to me because I talk in the maker community. I've come from this like art background and mm-hmm. then I'm thrust into this knife community. And most of these guys were never in art school, nor did they ever want to be, but they're thrust in this position of being called artists. Right. And then they kind of revel in it because it is something different from what their previous job was. Like right. now all of a sudden they're no longer you know, pick whatever your job was. Now I'm a knife maker. And then your customers think of you as an artist. Yeah. And then when it comes to the, the describing themselves, they'll say, I'm an artist. And then when you say, okay, to talk about your art, they say, well, I make it because it's cool. And it's very similar to what you were saying in terms of, you know, food writers using words like awesome. Mm. So what I've been trying to tell a lot of these guys, like, look, if you want to be an artist, you have to learn how to talk about your work. Right. Otherwise, it's not art. And I've gotten a little bit of trouble because I usually just say knife making isn't art anyway. Or yeah, knife, you knives say aren't that. art. A lot, of it's, a lot of it's for effect. But a, <laughs> a lot of it's also because I feel that it's very important to be able to express yourself. Not necessarily, and a lot of people say, well, if I express myself, this is how I express myself. I, maybe I don't have good words, or maybe I, I don't know how to express myself. Mm-hmm. But it gets to the point where I think that it's very important to be able to be crystal clear on your direction and the way you uh, can talk about your work to not just say, if is it art or is it not art, but is it successful or not successful? Right. So it, it interests me communication in general because I generally find that especially the older I get, I mean I, I'm you know forty seven or something like that. And I went to I went to Kenyon College, a you know, prominently English major school. So all my friends right. were all English majors and writers. That's so funny. I I was thrust in with these really great writers and I it made me enjoy writing because I really liked the idea of being able to express yourself. Now didn't David Foster Wallace teach there? I don't. Yes, he is he the guy who killed himself. Yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Wow. You like how that's how I know. You like how that's how yeah, I know. You're dark humor. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, yeah. oh yes, the guy who killed himself. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, he, he also good. wrote Infinite Jest, but you know, he really his his real fame is killing himself. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but I mean, you know, if you want me to be honest, that's how I'm honest. Actually, I went my on my freshman year uh, hall. I don't know if you know this particular writer, but this friend of mine I was a freshman with, his name is Will Hilton, mm-hmm. and he was 
a high school. He wrote for the Boston, uh, the Baltimore Sun in high school. He was like, wow. an, uh, he was like a, a, he looked a genius. You know, he was an incredible writer. What did he He's write the, about? He, it was all, it was all about Baltimore in like early mm-hmm. days. And then he became now he was just, he, he, he's interviewed tons of people gone over the all of the place he's had a lot of i mean he's like a real real writer but even at the time back in 1992 he was mm-hmm. at this this 18 year old kid was already writing pieces for the baltimore sun i love that and he was on my floor he was crazy and he was the first person <laughs> to he was the first person to and my roommate miles were the first people to introduce me to hunter thompson and i'd never you even heard of hunter, hunter you met hunter um, thompson not do you no, know no, that i'm no. obsessed with wait him? a second wait a second i didn't i say introduced as in as in introduced me to the writing oh, i didn't okay. meet hunter thompson <laughs> I was like, however <laughs> however i did get to do bong hits with timothy leary that is true that, I, I, that, okay that's cool it's close i mean it's as close as i'm going to get but he the was, hunter thompson he was crazy yeah, he's he. Well, it was crazy. He was yeah. like, I mean, he was like a sonambulant. I mean, he was legitimately <laughs> like, he was just like a fucking. He was a corpse in a bottle, as far as I was concerned. I had breakfast. We yeah, he was a total wraith, and it was that, that's nineteen ninety six, five or six, and he was like, I mean, he was. I had him in a bottle of formaldehyde and rolled him oh, in. And he wow, was, he uh, must much, have been fried. Totally the, fried. All of that LSD. Oh, he was like he literally. Timothy Leary literally looked like I'd the only corpse I'd ever seen before was my grandfather in the box. And Timothy Leary looked as close to that as, as soulless wow. and as lifeless as possible. And he was wearing a, um, like a letterman jacket and they just rolled him. And he spoke for five minutes and then I helped do a, I helped draw like a poster for him uh-huh. and I got to win having breakfast with him. So I had <laughs> breakfast with him with like three other guys and we all sat down and ordered food. And all he did was smoke cigarettes and left. It was, he was just like, of he was like a mess but when i say hunter thompson i i can't help but think about your work i i I, I never read i'd never heard of hunter thompson before i met my college friends and i started reading i know obviously you know uh all the yeah curse alona was the first book i read and then and hell's angels and then the Mm, classics i mean i just love them he he was really a, a remarkable writer he ended up uh i think his last decade or so he wasn't or maybe two he wasn't as great but uh you know he changed writing well i was going to make the suggestion that reading your work i see the i see the distance relationship between your work and hunter thompson's work that but is i so also flattering. i wondered i wonder i wonder if if there's no Hunter Thompson, is there Anthony Bourdain, the writer? Probably not. Um, you know, yeah. I, he really did revolutionize writing. Uh, you know, he put himself in the stories. Yeah. Uh, which was different. Um, and his, you know, this whole gonzo attitude where you're just, fuck it. I'm just going to write everything and it's it's not going to be clean and it's going to get people in trouble and it's... You know, I would say that there is a connection between Bourdain and Hunter Thompson. I, you know, the wonderful thing about Bourdain, his first work was, you know, what it's really like in a kitchen. Um, you know, and it's not spiffy. It's not Daniel Boulou's kitchen. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's a regular, you know, meat and potatoes place. And uh, I, it was it was revolutionary too in its way. I think it, it ended up being a little bit dangerous though, 
because I think a lot of chefs um, were trying to emulate that drinking, drugging, you know, uh, lifestyle that Anthony Bourdain seemed to live. I don't know that he did live that lifestyle, but I know a lot of chefs who sort of emulated him. Or condone it, at least. Yeah. I mean, passively condoning it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just trying to imitate it. When did you, were you, were you cooking before you read Kitchen Confidential or after? After. So I had, I had quit cooking. I, I had a terrible experience. The last cooking job that I had was so terrible, uh, where the, uh, the chef owner, I didn't realize it had become this raging alcoholic and was drinking, you know, creme de menthe. Oh, Jesus Christ. You know, like I'd walk in and be like, do you smell mint? (laughs) Um, You know, just whatever he could get his hands on. And, uh, you know, the business was tanking. He was, uh, you know, it was just such a night. And he was a really good friend of mine. And I just saw the pressures just kill him. Right. Uh, and, you know, some people can do it and do it really successfully. You know, we we both know chefs locally who are just really competent and they're really disciplined. You know, David Dabari is one where, you know, he he is all business when he's in his business. Yeah. But there are a lot of people who, you know, I can just see them falling apart uh, with it's it's. There's a lot of alcohol around that work. Um, I, you know, a lot of weed. You know, used to weed, be a yeah. lot of used to be a lot of cocaine. I don't know. You were cooking, right? Did you see a lot of cocaine when you were working? I I I have some stories that I was around that mm-hmm. that uh but at the same time like I never I was never involved in it, but it was around me. Yeah, you know, I, it was I, scary. To be honest with you, it was scary, and and you know, I definitely worked drunk. I mean, everybody did. You know, uh, it was it's sort of not a sustainable lifestyle. I mean, it wasn't for me anyway. Yeah, it's when I was I read Kitchen Confidential. My first job, job, my my first real job was picking up dog shit on Lexington Avenue. That That's was a nice I, job, dude. I made a sh- I made I, I I'll tell you my first Were you job. Walking the dogs? Or no, just... listen to this. My first job was I was hired by the 62nd Street Association to clean the tree pits between Third uh, Avenue and Fifth Avenue. So I would have a little bag, and then I would clean the cigarette butts out and the dog shit. And then once a week, they'd pay me seventy-five bucks. Well, it doesn't—they don't get that dirty. So I was, you know, whipping through that in forty-five minutes, all those tree pits. And then somebody on the Park Avenue Park Avenue uh, Association found out about it and hired me. I cleaned the the, uh, islands on Park Avenue from Fifty-fourth Street to Seventy-ninth Street. And once again. Not a big, yeah, but it, they believe it or not, people aren't that fast. I mean, it wasn't like you know, it wasn't like a garbage scow every single week. Well, it, people it was don't like hang out on those islands. They're sort well, of just traffic islands, aren't they? Mostly right. They're just traffic islands. So yeah. So there's some cigarette butts in here and there, mm-hmm. but not in the middle. But I'll never forget getting the job, and then they sat me down. And they said, sometime there's some homeless people that are <laughs> camped out, and there there were like. There were some hidden. There were some hidden ones where there were like shanty towns right. inside the. So they on said, Park just Avenue. Go, 
on park, I would see these trees and they were super dense and dark. I'm thinking like in the late 60s, 60s, 68, 7, 60, 65th, 66, 67th. And there'd be these like little camouflage tents mm. inside the middles. You know, the, the bushes would be very high or something like that. Right. And be like people who created these like little, little tiny camps, campgrounds in the middle of Park Avenue. It was like crazy. And they would say to me, don't say anything. And if you see them, you walk, just go around. I don't want you. We don't want you to be safe. Right. I'm walking around with the with the with the the poker in the bag and that would get a hundred bucks for that. So I would get like $175 a week for basically an hour and a half worth of work. That's a good gig. Dude, I never got that rate again. That rate was like <laughs> the greatest rate of all time. And that was like my first job job. And I was independent contractor and I would just whip through it. And it was like, everything was clean. The only time is I almost got into an argument with a guy who was not paying attention. His dog almost took a leak on me. And I, that was a Ooh. bad situation. But the real first job I ever had was I was a co-check kid at the Rainbow Room. That is a good job. That's lucrative. Dude, I it was not lucrative. I was no? just like a I was just checking coats. My father was uh once a week going in to cook banana breads. I heard at, about this. This is so crazy. He was friends with the the family that owned the place and he would come in and work with Waldy Maloof and Waldy right. loved him and he was like the father there. You know, he was in his 70s. He was in mm-hmm. his mid mid 70s coming in once a week to bake the banana bread. And my dad said if you need a job over the summer, you know, they're going to need some co-check kids. So I interviewed for the job and I was one of the co-check kids and that what was where... what was the going rate for a checked coat like what did you get to well it was a union they had a big thing because the rainbow room was like a union place like mm-hmm. I came in like I was I wasn't in the union because I was there too little too short of a time mm-hmm. but like it was the most corrupt place of all time. So you, <laughs> the corruption. I have s- crazy Rainbow Room stories because the growing rate was they give you what they give you. So the whole thing was everything is like at the time. This is now not there anymore. At the time, everyone's getting handed money. Everybody's getting handed money. The Kochek kids are getting handed money. There's yeah. like a little. There was a slot. If they put the money in the slot, you had to leave it. But if they put the money in your hand. You could pocket it. Nice. So there were people be you know, the coach guys would put their hands over the slot. There uh-huh. were all these little moves. And sure. then, you know, they would hand it to you and you weren't obligated. The union said you weren't obligated to put it in, so you put it in your pocket. I would come home with like it was like this wrinkle this just this giant <laughs> wad of like wrinkled, crumpled up bills. And it was crazy. But the like the the drugs in there were crazy. Yeah. And then the cooks were crazy. And then the, all the waiters were driving like all the waiters at the Rainbow were driving Jaguars. And I what? was wondering why is this happening? And then the and then the concierge was a pimp. And he, he also would every I'm telling you, he would bring in like his he would introduce me to his cousin every his new cousin every week and i was too <laughs> stupid and I, and I was just like he's got a lot of cousins like he brings a million in here. cousins and why are they dr- and why are they dressed like that it's so, <laughs> so inappropriate to be with your cousin dressed like that but it was like they, he was a pimp and then you, if you want so so was he working the rainbow room with his uh with his product uh, you know how how yeah. was he related okay so he was bringing so he, he was bringing escorts into people he would bring in escorts and then when these drunken customers would come around saying they need some customers, he'd have them at the bar. And then right. he would just say, oh, this is my friend. 
my cousin. <laughs> right. This is my friend, and you know, and he's cut. Yeah, I didn't know exactly how it was, but I just remember he was bringing in women all the time, and wow. then all the maitre d's were all taking in, like the line to get into one of the places. This is the place that Dale DeGroff was at. Dale DeGroff actually carded my friend, and he <laughs> turns to me and he says, "If this kid is underage, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna tell your dad." That was how crazy it was. Ooh. Dale DeGroff. Dale DeGroff, one of the greatest mixologists. Right. When they came up with the word mixology, Dale yeah. DeGroff was the guy. He was giving me all sorts. Of, I was, you know. And he I must never have made a ton there. Oh, dude. The money and the cash in that joint was crazy. And the minx people where we had to lock the minx up. And then uh-huh. one point, one, there was one night I had to do the, I had to do Christmas and New Year's. Uh-huh. One, a mink got stolen. And, and it was like we, somebody came to the back and stole the mink. And then the insurance company had to be involved. Oh, well, there was man. one time where Nick, Nicholas Cage was in there. And he came in bombed totally bombed he asked me where the bathroom is and i said okay down the left go down the hallway take a left go to the right he went the exact opposite one of the elevators i said sir sir it's not there and he was just like he was devoid he was devoid of life he was like timothy leary style he was out of it out of it uh who is the biggest gangster in new york recently uh free got john Gotti. john Gotti used to come in the Teflon Don. And the story was, I got two big time, you know, you know, crazy stories. So he used to come in. I wasn't, I got there, I guess after they indicted him or something like that. But when he used to come in, he'd have a guy next to him. And the guy next to him had a roll of money. And <laughs> if you said to him, oh, good evening, Mr. Gotti. How are you, Mr. Gotti? The guy next to him would peel out a hundred and give it to him. So it's just like Goodfellas. It was like, it was insane. Like, raining hundred dollar bills. He'd go to the bathroom. Hello, hello, Mr. Gotti. Nice evening, Mr. Gotti. And the guy would peel out a hundred. You go, oh, Mr. Gotti. Hey, Mr. Gotti. Hey, yeah. Are your shoes untied, Mr. Gotti? And then the dude would like peel. So it was just like that. And then there was another, there was another time where this giant oil sheet came in and he wanted to come in for lunch, but they wouldn't let him in because he wasn't a member at lunchtime. It was all members only. Oh, I didn't so know we bought like a $20,000 membership just to have lunch. And then he tipped like the tip the waiter like three thousand dollars or something oh like that. God. It was just, cr- just for fucking lunch. It was just crazy. And then, but what I remember was the depravity. Like there was <laughs> a lot of there was a lot of like I uh, love solicit- depravity. <laughs> well, this is the I saw. It I was the first. It. It, the interesting thing about the Rainbow Room, the Rainbow Room is on the top of the world of uh, Rockefeller Center, right. and it's you know it's the most one of them, we used to be used to go and then you would look out and see the world, see you know the New York, and you know the the it was super high value food. The food was really high high end. The service was really high end, but what you'd see behind the scenes was like pimps and prostitutes and drugs and you'd see like you know like being sexually I, I was sexually harassed by one of the i was sexually harassed by one of the guys who ended up wanting to have me and my dad at the same time if ew. you really want to know about it yes yeah, super ill and that was weird <laughs> and then i was also it was it, but it was just like the same but then when my wife came for her first time into new york mm-hmm. we got because i was there i said let's go down and see what the and at the rainbow room and the maitre d was nice enough to give us a, a front a front uh, table to see Richie Havens. Oh, nice! It was a, the, but the, but when Kitchen Confidential came out and I was in culinary school, I recognized I recognized what Tony Bourdain was talking about. Oh yeah, I mean you know that's going back to me looking at those 
graduate school applications, I was having so much fun right. cooking, you know, and I was like, God, do I really want to teach or do I want to get on the pirate ship for a while? Yeah. And I, I really wanted to be on that pirate ship. So, you know, it's, it's just a very attractive life. I mean, you know, you cook for how long? I mean, th- I mean, truly, truly three days. <laughs> I was like three days, like professionally three days. When I worked so for Charlie Palmer. For, you paid for cooking school. And well, for... I'll tell you what happened. What happened was is Charlie Palmer wanted me to, I met him while I was in culinary school and I was hired to build, you know, it was through a, a friend from Creighton Barrel. I was going to build an unstealable table. For him. <laughs> it was at Grand Central Station. Right. Something that couldn't be stolen. And then when I was supposed to come to a meeting, I said, well, I can't come to this meeting that you want me to because I'm in culinary school. And they hired me on the spot. They're like, you have to do a paid internship. Do it with us. We'll pay you. Oh, nice. And then I was his general. I was his uh, project manager for a lot of his restaurants. Oh, to, for the build outs? Yeah, they wanted. Well, one of them was the build outs, but like they were like, it, I wasn't the handyman, but they wanted somebody who could turn a screw, you know? Right. And and then I ended up becoming the general manager, but I wanted to cook at Oriole. And then I uh, st- I trailed for three nights. Or three three services, and then mm-hmm. Charlie was just like, "Okay, I don't want you cooking. I got plenty of cooks. I need you to do other <laughs> things." You know, it was really like I really didn't have much of a choice. That's so funny. But and then the only other time, actually, there's one time I cooked was one of the garde manger guys at the restaurant I was the general manager of uh, was sick, and mm-hmm. I asked to be the cook because we couldn't find any replacements, and I said, "Can I please cook?" And then they called Charlie, and, and they said, Can, Jeff wants to do garde manger tonight. Is that okay? He's like, yeah, that's fine. So I got to do garde manger one night at a restaurant. It was just me, the line cook, and the chef, and that was fun. Was but it then, hard? of course, it was hard, but it was, I mean, it was just salads, and then I was frying oysters every so often, and, mm-hmm. and it, wasn't a, it, wasn't, it wasn't hard. But the funniest part was, because I wasn't there, one of the waiters was the, the like, they kind of, like, walking around and talking to people and stuff like that, and then they had one giant complaint about, like, we had something, something didn't come right. And when they asked where the manager is, they said he's cooking dessert. Yeah, they're cooking <laughs> salads or something like that. So I, I, we got this call from Charlie. Every Ouch. so often when there was like a bad, when there was like a bad complaint, he'd say, what's this all about? I'm like, oh yeah, that was the night I was cooking chef. He said it was okay. He's like, yeah, all right. But uh, so now they all have Yelp. So everybody airs everything publicly on Yelp. Well, this, this actually brings me to something I wanted to talk to you about, about food writing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What do you think the difference is between the mindset of a food writer and like a food critic? Well, I was a restaurant critic. I don't know if you know that. I was I don't a restaurant. I was a restaurant critic for eight years. Is that really? Correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, what was that I was like? Re- uh, it was. A drag, actually. Um, you know, uh, the magazine that I was writing for um, was really pressuring me to be um, more positive about things uh, than I felt, and it was a constant struggle. If I if I said something negative, and I always did, I'd have to argue about it. It didn't pay well, believe it or not. And I had a young kid, so I'd have to go out you know, three nights, pay the babysitter. I don't think I made money yeah. on it. It was a very high profile um, position though. You know, it got me a lot of attention as a food writer. Uh, you know, I was picked up in the times a few times, you know, uh, in the blog roles. Uh, so 
you know, it, I, I did it for reasons, not for money, but um, it was a tough job, you know. One of my friends called me the hammer. You know, I'd have to like say say bad things about people, and you know, these are all my friends now, which is right. really funny. Uh, you know, but again, David Debari is still upset about something I said nine years ago in a in a review. What? So when you're going into he brings reviews, it up periodically. I he's allowed. That's that's what true friends do is they never <laughs> let things go. I mean, real honestly, right? honestly. I mean, you know, I would if you if you were my friend and you just slam me in my restaurant, I wouldn't never let. I'd never let you forget about it. Yeah. I I do remember there was one restaurant I was involved with, and the whole thing about these restaurant reviews, especially the t- the Times reviews, where they really were making and breaking restaurants. Yeah. And it was but like, although you know, I will say, you know, there are so many shitty, successful restaurants that get <laughs> no, but it, but they get negative reviews. You know, Elaine's. You know, there's so many of them that are um, famously shitty, right? And they get terrible reviews, but there's something about them. People love that restaurant no matter what, and they're thronged. <sighs> Well, Lanes is you got to put Lanes in a different category. Yeah. I mean, that's like that's like the place that like Billy Joel sings about. I mean, that's really like right. that's like a dump. It's supposed to be a dump. Always was. My uncle used and to the go. And food there all was the time. supposed to be shitty. And you it know. was shitty. It was shitty. I remember when I ate there once with my uncle. He was a regular there. And you know, the whole thing about Lanes is, is I mean, even Bruce, uh, Bruce uh, Billy Woody Joel Allen. wrote about. He wrote about Lanes. I mean, Lanes is was a famous Upper East Side place where. Famous people would go after hours, and the food was shitty, and Elaine was this big, bigger-than-life character, and it was like a very famous restaurant. But it was, yeah, it was known for being terrible, but it was like there was something about it. Right. I don't know if that's, I don't, I think that that's a different category uh, completely, but I remember when the Times re- reviewed one of the restaurants that I was working at, the chef was this very, how should I, ex- uh, adventurous uh, chef, dessert chef, and he put something on the menu that was a candied tangerine with mint pe- peppermint pe- panna cotta. And the, and the restaurant critic, I don't remember which one it was. It might have been Frank Bruni, to be honest with you. It might have been Frank Bruni. Yeah. Uh, 2001, was it Frank Bruni? Something like that? I think it was Frank Bruni. He says you can he, – he was, he was reviewing the restaurant. He gave the restaurant two stars, which the chef was very depressed about. Right. But then they were talking about the dessert, and he says, you can – I just had this, you know – peppermint panna cotta with tangerine candy tangerine and i can tell you how it tasted just go into your cabinet and get some scope and brush your <laughs> was, teeth and then was, go drink some tropicana orange juice I was, <laughs> was, that's exactly what i was thinking when you described that dish it's like toothpaste and orange that's, juice that's ex- <laughs> well, that's what he said in the times piece yeah. and it was like it went from just being like this didn't hit its mark to being like I'm so excited to just be shitty to this yeah. restaurant right now with this great line. <laughs> you know, that temptation is always there uh, because it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the few food writing areas where you can just unleash all of your snark. Uh, and there was just a – Pete Wells just dumped on um, uh, 11 Madison Park, and it was just such a – well-written dumping. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was a joy to read, but you, you're sort of wincing all along. Um, I, I just wonder, I wonder though, like when you were a food writer, I mean, mm-hmm. what, what, when you're going in there, are you nervous? 
Do they know yeah. who you are when you're walking no, in? No, no, no. I was an anonymous critic, and it was very important to me. I mean, I would get, I could see when I got, when I got, no, you know, if, if people recognize me, I can see that uh, because suddenly everybody's looking at you. But I was anonymous, and I was sort of good at being anonymous. I, you know, paid in cash. I you had all sorts of fake open table uh, accounts. You know, I was changing them constantly. Uh, and, you know, as I say, it, it was very hard to say negative things. I knew I'd have to, I'd get called on the carpet by my editor to defend it. But also it was my reputation. It was my name. So I had to say negative things. You know, there are a lot of shitty restaurants and you kind of have to warn people about that. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who look at critics as being mean, but, you know, they actually serve a serve a purpose. If you can only get out once a month uh, and it's an expensive meal, you know, I kind of like to know what I'm getting into. Right. So I'm still a little bit, you know... I'm a little bit defensive about that job because I had to take so much shit about it. I bet. <laughs> Getting yelled at by basically everyone, you know, by, by my boss, by the restaurant, um, you know, but it, it's, you're like on a knife's edge because if you're too nice, then you're kind of, um, shilling. You're shilling. Uh, if you just say everything's great, you know, that's who you go down is as a writer, as the person who can't recognize bad when they see it. So um, it's a it's a tough job, and I'm I'm glad I'm not doing it anymore because I found it exhausting emotionally. <laughs> you know, like I I would meet people that I gave a shit review to, uh, and I'd meet them later, and I'd just be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Did <laughs> you? Yeah, I met them all the time. I'm still, you know, I'm a journalist, so I'm doing all sorts of work. And you know, when they just opened, I would review. You know, I would. Re- probably review within four months but then you know a year later i'd have to do a story about this guy or i'd meet him at an event or you know or her and it would just be painfully awkward um but now now ms nice guy you know i i just write about people i like what do you think how do you think now you know i've been saying lately a lot that the the restaurant business is has been the the kicking the kicking bag or the punching bag of society really i mean nowadays especially after you know the pandemic and something yeah. like that it's been beyond brutal i mean in, in good days it was hard to keep make sure you filled the restaurant right. and then with within you know all these months of having you know half occupancy and then all these regulations and rules what is the role of the food critic when it comes to now i mean well, because it is interesting you know yeah, I mean, you know, Pete Wells is not giving stars out because, like, you know, he's just not going to do it because everybody's suffering um, after the pandemic. So he's just not going to put those ratings out. I, you know, it's, uh, I think it, it, it's been so devastating to restaurants. You know, I'm trying to be upbeat with our magazine but every person I interview has closed three restaurants, you know? Right. Uh, so it's, it's just been so hard for them. It's been hard for magazines. It's probably been hard for you too, but um, it's really devastating for restaurants. But, you know, one of the things that's so inspiring is they, you know, these people are all hustlers. Like they found ways to get through, uh, you know, they, they cooked 
you know, uh, meals for charities. They did all sorts of things just to get through. And they did, you know, many of them did. I talk about, uh, there's a chef you probably, you know, you know, uh, Mark Vetri. He's a mm-hmm. famous Italian chef, famous Italian American chef in yep. Philly. He's probably considered one of the big, you know, Italian, you know, per people, chefs cooking Italian food now. Mm-hmm. And during COVID, I, following him was very fascinating because he, he has a restaurant. It's a, it was in a townhouse and he really did everything he could to stay open. Like many people, you know, restaurant people are not like, you know, the type of people to close down willy nilly. I mean, they no. really do everything they can to keep, stay open because, you know, these restaurant people are all, you know, they have bills to pay and stuff like that. And he followed all the rules and he was very pro. He did the takeout, and then he did yeah. the. He he bought he bought a pile. He probably went down to Canal Plastics and bought all the acrylic they had. You know, I mean, he was like he made partitions and he did everything. Right. And he was testing his people, and then he was very very pro the restaurant business and keeping open to pay his employees to pay his right. bills I mean, to keep the places did. going. And I and I feel like the I don't remember which magazine or which newspaper I had it, but the the whoever the food guy was from one of the magazines down in Philly, they were very hard on him, and he was very very defiant. And it was like Good. he said something where he said something along the lines of, "Look, the 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 the, the mayor, the governor are if they if they had really kind of told us what to do in the beginning, I would have shut this place down early ago. I, I'm doing right. everything I can, and then these goddamn food writers are writing all these you know opinion pieces that are making it harder on us, the restaurant people who are doing a very good job. I actually had my business partner Tony on, and he was saying that restaurants are probably the safest place to be during uh, this coronavirus because all the cleaning that's being done. It's very like, it's one of the things that's become most uh, controllable is how clean the restaurants are because they're constantly cleaning down anyway. I'm fascinated by, I'm fascinated by these small restaurateurs are having to navigate not only the regular time, but this, this crazy pandemic. Oh my God! I, you know the things the the story keeps. Well, certainly during 2020, the story kept changing. You know, uh, you know, you have to reduce capacity. You have to close. Right. You know, uh, outdoor dining only. You can have alcohol. You can sell alcohol because you know what most people don't understand is that um, restaurant restaurant profits come primarily from their beverage program. So you know, food costs. Uh, the margin of profit on food is very, very, very slim. So generally, profits in restaurants come from the bar. It comes from, you know, that's why wine is, you know, if you buy wine in a, in a wine store or in a restaurant, you'll see that it's three times the price of retail. And this is all to offset the slim profits on food. So, you know, takeout was never going to be a survival tactic. For most restaurants, when they were allowed to sell alcohol and and um, and cocktails, that was brilliant because to then go, they could, yeah, to go, it was great. Uh, but that got shut down. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen this winter. Uh, you know, <laughs> I just I can't even imagine. Um, it, it, it is it's something. I mean. I, I I try to I talked to Hillary and I have my wife and I have like a for the past two years I mean we were talking about coronavirus 
the beginning of December of of 2019 because and she, she was a nurse, right? Yeah. She's also no, she well, she's a she's a nurse practitioner, but she was also she's at a double masters in public health and oh, a public masters from Columbia from ep, of epidemiology. So this shit is in her wheelhouse. Yeah. This isn't like we aren't like Facebook doctors. I mean, <laughs> my wife is like, you know, she has friends at the CDC and yeah. she's reading real things and it's understanding. So cool. Well, it was. It's very. It's depressing. It's been depressing since the beginning for us, and we're very much along the lines of like. I, and I, the other thing is, is whatever she says, I do. Like, I mean, this is mm-hmm. like if if we had like a like a metalworking pandemic where everything was dependent on metalworking, she'd listen <laughs> to me. But like now, I mean, that's my area. You know, this is my. When that happens, of, you're gonna yeah, get the call. <laughs> when the metalworking pandemic happens and everybody has to learn how to learn how to mig weld, they come to me. Okay, my wife will listen to me, but in this situation. Situation. She says wear a mask. I wear a mask. She says don't go out. I don't go out. Yeah. But it was. It's just been one of those things that I just. It's just. It's overwhel- It's overwhelming. And what we worry about is people's the, the 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 there's a misconception of this concept of what a restaurateur is and i think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that they use the word restaurateur mm. because we know you and i know some restaurateurs who you know you, when you own a restaurant you have you have a you have a glass ceiling that you can hit very easily and once you hit that glass ceiling there's just no more profits i mean you no. just can't bring more people in the restaurant you can't bring more people to the bar once you max out the tables and you max out the bar that is your ceiling Right. That's so why they open got, multiples. That's why you open multiple restaurants, and because this gives you the opportunity to maybe you know get a second car, get a car, or pay your bills better, right. or be able and to economies like economies of scale. You know, it's a, and it's and it's and it truly, truly is this. I mean, it's like a it's like a parasite because there are so many people that I know who own multiple restaurants or or partners in restaurants, uh-huh. and they're barely making ends meet. You know, yeah. so. And it's like I, f- I feel terrible for these guys because it's like you can't you can't give yourself a bonus because you can't get more people in the restaurant. You can't get more people. You can't you can't go over the maximum amount of money that you can make in the restaurant. It's just like well, there's one, no growth. One, one thing I will say that the pandemic did for restaurants is um, all the outdoor dining. So many cities have allowed uh, them to, in some cases, like double their capacity with outdoor tables. Hmm. Now it's seasonal, but, um, you know, say you're a 60 seat restaurant, you can get, you know, a few six tops outside in the street. That's great. But at the same time, you drive down Lexington Avenue and it like legitimately <laughs> looks like a shanty town. I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the funny thing. Everybody erected those, those shelters very quickly. And they really do. They're like not aging well, dude. <laughs> there's dude. no, there's no building code. <laughs> you know, there's nothing. I mean, you want to look, you want to find a shitty well, a shitty builder. Go get a <laughs> restaurant guy to build you a fucking lean to. <laughs> I saw some bullshit. I mean, it was like, and, and all of a sudden you're going over, you're in Park Avenue, and you see what Danielle built these like, you know, he built these like, uh, you know, apres ski huts, and I'm just I like, love it. yo, this is some particle board. <laughs> this is some particle. <laughs> this is terrible. I, it was like we actually had to we 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 uh, we closed down our. We had a little office in the city, and we got rid of it in the beginning. Oh, of the pandemic. you did. Had to. It was just like it was. We weren't. Neither one of us were there. Wasn't and that in the financial district? It was in South Street Seaport. Right. And we had like a 
we had a crazy good deal and it was like great and we had a couple chefs come down there and stuff meet with us and stuff like that mm-hmm. but it was like it was like tony's office basically but it was great and we set it up and looked great but it was like it was just it was there was no reason to be paying for a rent in the in new york city for for this that we weren't even there but i just remember going down and driving down lexington avenue and seeing all these like i mean sh- i mean it was a shanty town and i just don't know who went to eat in these fucking things because i mean it literally looked like you're gonna get like you know the only person i think would probably like it would be the guys from joe beef you know who, uh, right. who maybe who maybe like that that whole they style can. of like yeah they can't the camp cooking you know right yeah i don't know you know i i like that they um afforded these restaurants the opportunity to make money i do think it's really funny that there didn't seem to be any kind of building code none i mean that is remarkable to me remarkable (laughs) they have the health department they have the you know building codes that they have to um adhere to you know (laughs) restauranting is full of codes except you could just you know, put two two by fours and some plastic up outside, and it's fine. Have you ever been involved in in a health uh, a health inspection? Uh, yes, I have, and it is hilarious because uh, the guy comes in and everybody very quietly runs starts fixing things, yeah. <laughs> changing things. <laughs> So the other thing is I wrote about uh, the health department and one of the most horrific things that I learned, I mean, I looked at, you know, I got a FOIA Freedom of Information Act uh, access to the health department, the health department files on restaurants is a while ago. And the restaurants weren't the problem. The worst problem were the schools. Really? So, yeah, they had refrigerators that were over 40 degrees. They were not heating food high enough. They had expired goods. It was really appalling uh, that this is what we're feeding kids. <laughs> so That you know, doesn't I, surprise me at all. I pack a lunch for my daughter. <laughs> yeah. And you should too. <laughs> I, you know what? I, we actually, the funny thing you say that because I always made it my, uh, a lunch for my kid. And nowadays, I would say I sit because I remember when I was a kid, I loved eating school lunch because it was just so different than what I was eating at right. home. <laughs> you and, were probably having like great food at home, and you well, wanted that shitty cardboard pizza. It depends on whose house I was at. You know, I was divorced. Divor- oh, right. So at my father's house, he would make me this. You know, he'd have some something crazy. But then I'll tell you the craziest thing he ever made. I still today this day think it was one of the goddamn genius thing. I, he was a great cook, but it was like literally he had nothing. He cooked some linguine, and then he sautéed up some red peppers, and then he tossed in cottage cheese, and then he seared duck breast. He tossed <laughs> he tossed the linguine in the cottage cheese and peppers, and then he s- sliced and seared the duck breast on top. I swear to God, it was the best goddamn thing. I it was like, how so, do you know how to do that? Well, you know, the cottage cheese is replacing ricotta. You can see yeah. that, right? So yeah. you've got yeah, so you've got this ricotta dress pasta. It's the duck breast that's not fitting for me. And wow. the crit- the critic in me is raising questions. There was nothing else in the refrigerator. I mean, there was like one little Breakstones, you know, one pack. <laughs> you know, that was like the Breakstones right. six packs. There's one of those left, and he had like some expired pepper. And it was like he had <laughs> nothing in the house and he just coughed it up. But in regards to my mother's house, the joke was always when I would come to the door, I would smell and we lived on the 18th floor and I could tell it was either pizza or Chinese food. So it was like, we didn't really, so for me, I liked school lunch because it was totally different. 
But when I talked to my kid, I was, and I said to her, I'm like, you know, at one time I asked her to bring me back. They had breakfast at her school. And I right. asked her to bring me a breakfast sandwich. I wanted to know what it was like. And she brought it back. But the funny thing is that recently she was making lunch uh, for herself mm-hmm. and then packing it. And I said, I don't know why you don't get lunch from the school. And she goes, I would never get a schoolie. They're called schoolies. The schoolies. And she said, I'd smell. never get a schoolie. I'd never get a schoolie. She's, those are terrible. Schoolies are terrible. Well, I, I visited my daughter's school and I could smell it cooking. And it was nauseating. I don't know how kids could deal with the smell but, of lunch. It's, but do these health inspectors inspect the schools? Yeah, they do. It's a, it's a, you know, yeah, they have to inspect, you know, professional kitchens. That's a professional kitchen. So they, um, they make sure that the refrigerators are cooling things appropriately, that, you know, uh, food that's being served hot is hot enough to kill bacteria. And it wasn't happening. So, you know, this one school, I'll, I won't say the, uh, the town uh, because that was a long time ago that I wrote that. And I can't say that it's still true. But, you know, there were serious close down your restaurants violations. You know, if, if, you, really? if your fridges are not, you know, are, are at 40 degrees, that will close you down immediately. I I was surprised. I wasn't surprised, but I took I did the the there was a, I guess Mike Bloomberg changed the way they did the health department and then restaurants had to go get the take the test, the golden apple. It was like a golden apple class. It wasn't it was you had to go take a class. Uh-huh. And I remember it was like a 5 days uh intensive class to get a a, a Basically, say that you took this golden apple a, class, like food safe or whatever. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. a food safety class, and you, you besides getting your picture with the uh, with your thing on it, you got you had taken this class, and the the health inspectors were very much along the lines of when you talk to them, they would say, "We don't eat at our friends' houses. We're all <laughs> vegans. We're all vegans. <laughs> we don't eat out at restaurants. We won't even trust our friends to cook for us." They were like germaphobes. They're germaphobes like, because you know what? They see the worst. They see rat-infested, cockroach-infested, filthy, um, you know, all of those things they're scarred by. But, you know, I would hate to never eat a medium-rare burger. Um, You know what I mean? Like, I would hate for that to be my life. Yeah. I, it's a it's a tricky spot. I remember I remember a few health inspections where I was when I was a general manager somewhere, right. where the the health inspector was really running me around. Like it was it was it became this strange power dynamic. Oh yeah. And it was like there was one thing where he didn't see a sign, and he says, "I'm going to turn my back." And when I turn around, that sign better be up. I'm not kidding. Was he flirting or something? What no, no, no. It was like, I'm going to give you the chance to put this sign up. And it was very, very like he was playing games. I mean, he yeah. was playing games and it was very uncomfortable. I hated the authority. I hated the fact that there was he was dangling you know, violations or whatever. Right. And it got to the point where I hated, I hated the health inspectors so much that my wife played a joke on me. Uh, years later when I was running this bakery and she hired an actor to come <laughs> into the bakery and he came in and he went over, he looked around, he showed me a badge and the health inspectors were telling me to be, you have to be very aware of what the badges look like because there are people who are hustling restaurants. They're oh my hustling God. Them for, to... for, for payoffs. Yeah. Yeah. For payoffs. Yeah. And 
Yeah, they're it's totally a scam. So this mm-hmm. guy flashed this badge, and then he takes a, a napkin from the dispensary, crumples it on the floor, he throws it in the ground, and he goes, that's a health violation, oh. and I'm your health inspector. And then he started he started pointing at stuff. He says, that's a health inspection. That's a health violation. And he goes, that's a health. He starts going, and my blood is boiling because I hate <laughs> health inspectors. Well, and then it's, they do some good work. I mean, there are some filthy kitchens course. out there, but they, they, can be, they can be deeply annoying. So I'm just about to put my hands on him and say, I need to see your, I need to see your, your, I need to see that, that badge again. And he goes, happy birthday from your wife. It was, it was everybody, everybody in the place was like, your wife is the coolest person of all time. And I'm like, and my wife is like waiting for the phone call. Terrified. She's terrified because she knows she's the, she's terrified. And then I was like, I was the, it was everybody at the place was just like, dude, your wife is the greatest thing. That is. She had you. I was, and I said to the, I said to the kid, the guy, I'm like, I was gonna throw you through the window, like in Beverly Hills Cop when they throw Axel Foley through the plate glass window. Right. I was gonna throw you through the plate glass window, and then the funniest part was I was gonna actually. I told the story to someone. I said, you know, we should do this to my dad because my dad had a winery and he oh, used right. to get he used to get uh, he used to get visits by the BTA BATF. Mm-hmm. And they were like driving crazy. He was also a bit of a slob too. And they, he got so mad. Oh, they're counting the bat droppings and yeah. they're going to count the bat droppings. They're driving me crazy. And I said, you know, we should hire him to, to do that. And then his wife said, he'll die. He'll die. If you <laughs> he'll, just he'll, 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 he'll just keel over. He won't be able to handle it. I'm just like, eh, uh, let me weigh the options. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> so, still out of the worst idea in the world. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> Yeah, you know, health department has to be there, um, but they. I will tell everybody listening that every restaurant violates something. Many of them have illegal fryers, you know, many yeah. that aren't under the duct system, you know. Um, it just, it's a, it's a, Pete Cooks always drink in kitchens. By the way, you are not allowed to consume anything in kitchens, but if you're working in 120 degrees, you know, you have to hydrate. I think that there's also you're not supposed to be making confit. Like there's some like weird mm. rules about confit and stuff. I remember that no, was you a have health to do, thing. Yeah, you have to do a hassip. Uh, don't ask me right. what that what that stands for, but it's basically when um when sous vide came in, uh there's some potential for foods to be, you know, if you're cooking something at 100 degrees, that is a really good environment for bacteria. So, yeah. you know, you have to you have to go through this hassip uh, procedure so that you're not spreading bugs. I it makes me. I mean, of course, I'm glad because I mean, you know, you, you make you hear about the stories. Like growing up, I was always told that the hot dog vendors used to fill their their water. The Sabrets guys used to fill their water where the horses drink the water. So like wherever the horse stalls were, is that's a very where, that's specifically New York story. Yeah, and that was those stories. They 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 wheel them over to where the horses drink, and they get the water from there, and that's why they call them <laughs> dirty water hot dogs. You 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 have to you have to thank them. You have to thank the health department because obviously there are a lot of flea bags out there yeah. working it out. But I just I always feel so bad for restaurants, especially guys who are Dave Debari. We're talking about Dave Debari. Dave uh-huh. Debari actually has my first chef knife. He's the first chef knife yeah. I ever met, made. I have held that knife. That thing is a saber. That, that thing a, is that huge. That was a weighty knife. <laughs> 
That was a heavy <laughs> knife, and I had it was it was in the beginning stages when I thought, yeah, everyone's making thin knives. I'm gonna make them big. You know, and it was like it was not really well thought out. But at the same this time, this is like a medieval longsword. <laughs> it was closer to it was closer to being like a like a, a wedge or a maul. It was yeah. it'd be great for like you know for making kindling. Tree trunks. Yeah, right. Splitting it would be much better for that. But but one of the things about Dave Debari, what he represents to me in the culinary world is he's figured out a way to create a signature style that Mm. if you had food from any of his restaurants, you'd know it was his. I find him to be the one of the more, I like the fact that if you, there are different types of restaurants and different chefs have a signature style that is all their own. One of the things on this podcast is most of the people listen to it are makers. I always felt that makers and cooks come from the same place. I think so. You know, I work with a lot of makers, you know, and and we just sort of get along. Yeah. Well, Um, I mean, it's the same thing because basically, and this is something I said when I interviewed for uh, that uh, couple nights at uh, Oriole, was they said to uh, Chef Jerry Hayden, God rest his soul, said, um, he said, what makes you think you can cook? And I said, well, I'm making sculpture and making food is the same. You're just taking ingredients and proper technique and giving it to someone. I don't really see that much of a difference. Cooks in general, it's hard for them to create their own style. But one of the things about all these cooks that are very similar to makers is there's it's hard to just have a business plan being your creative. Right. You have to have people behind you. And one of the things that I love about guys like Dave is he just has such an inc- – his food is – he's got the parlor. You took me to the, to, uh, the cookery. You mm. also took me to my favorite restaurant that he had. I don't think it's there anymore. No. Eugene's. <laughs> yeah, it was, pandemic dead. It was – I mean his style of cooking is his own. It is, um, and I love that about him. You know, it's very uh, free. It pulls from everywhere. He puts Rice Krispies and salad and stuff. Um, you know, there are a lot of chefs out there who have are really technically brilliant, uh, but they're not creative. And he is, he's the other guy. Uh, yeah. You know, he's just wildly creative and technically brilliant. One of the things that I find about his food now, if you just to kind of give you an overview of the kind of work that he does, I mean, his food is very unctuous. He, his food is very like give the people what they want. Charlie Palmer used to say to me all the time when you're coming up with a menu, give the people what they want. You always get that with him. Like everything is very like it's almost like he does gild the lily to a certain degree, but everything is very approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's approachable in terms of the quality and the and the size and the, the, the but it's the contrast and then the the contrast of the, the ingredients that he uses the cooking style that makes it, when you go to any one of his restaurants it, it you can't you know that it's a Dave Dubai restaurant. You do, and you know the funny thing is uh, for all of the fun that he has and all the silliness like the Rice Krispies and the whatever he puts in there, he's actually really respected in the, in the restaurant world. Uh, you know, I was working with, uh, a Blue Hill at Stone Barnes chef recently, and that's the only restaurant he goes to around here. Really? You know? Yeah. I mean, he is, uh, his, he is fun and that's part of his, his restaurant or his, his cuisine ideas to have fun, but it's actually technically really well done. I mean, now he's, he's aging sausages and they are beautiful. Like, you know, he's just, he's that guy. 
he did something that was when you took me to Eugene's in, mm. in uh, Port Chester. Right. He created something that I didn't think could happen. I grew up in New York City in the 70s and 80s. He created a Lexington Avenue 1970s <laughs> diner. Like, it was very, very Lexington Avenue 1970. <laughs> it was, like, crazy. Like, I walked in, and I was just like, I was transported to this extraordinarily niche place. And he had, he had all this great stuff. He had this one thing he had, which was with the – he had sautéed matzo balls, oh, which were, like, so good. insane. Totally insane. Like, insane. And he was doing kielbasas, and he was doing uh, his version of, like, a Big Mac, and everything was just beautiful. What do you think when you come up with it? How do you come up with stuff like that? How do you, well, how do, how does he, what's his deal? He has always had this idea of a diner since I think since as long as we've been friends, he was thinking of doing like a cafeteria. Uh, he has this affection for these somewhat despised restaurant style, uh, restaurant genres. So, you know, there are these things in the South called meat and three. And this is a cafeteria-style thing. It's a counter, and people have ice cream scoops, and they plop, you know, whatever you pick on a plate, and then you pay for it, and you go eat. He loves that. He loves that idea so much. Uh, he loves the idea of diners. He spent a lot of time in diners. Um, so he just here's he has the, this affection for them. Here's the tough question. What did you say in the review that got him so bad? Ah. Uh, Really? Is this bad? He's not going to really? listen to this. Okay. Come on, let's get it out there. Let's get it out there, and we'll just tell me the name of the restaurant and tell me what overwhelmingly happened. Overwhelmingly uh, positive review. By the way, I think he was the only uh, restaurant that I ever gave four stars to because wow. I was the, I was the hammer. Um, he served a very recently formed slice of, of he makes his own mozzarella he uh sliced it and there was a dish with a sliced mozzarella and toast and the mozzarella was so fresh that it essentially bled all over the plate and it was like a milk soup with croutons in it um and he's still bitter about that and he's still that's bitter. what you said i did i said it was like you know it it, it had fallen apart um, and I, I, you know, he's still pissed about that and he's still trying to defend it. And I keep saying, David, it was milk soup. See, this is the interesting <laughs> thing about cooks especially. I like the fact that he, I like the fact that you guys are close. <laughs> I like the fact that you were able to get past he got over it. Yeah. I don't know how you did that. I would have been, I would have held the grudge. I wouldn't have been just breaking your balls. I might've been like, yeah, fuck this. I can't, I can't handle milk soup. You it's know, especially 11 cause... years later, he still brings it up. Wow. Yeah. What was the name of the restaurant? Uh, that was the cookery. Oh, the cookery. Yeah. That was the cookery. Yep. It was my I... only four star review in all of that time. That was a Dobbs. That's really. Ch I was in Dobbs Ferry before he the the restaurant renaissance happened, yeah. and, and I and I and I always kind of wish that we had been there when that happened be, when they were there because we really could have used it. All yeah, there was left there was Sushi there. Mike's was the only place that was there. And it was just like, <laughs> it was just like you know, get the rock and roll roll and you know beat it. You know, it was right. really not. So. When I think about food in general, I love talking to cooks. I'm, I'm hoping to have Elon Hall on. He's a oh, friend nice. of ours and good dude and, and uh, some other things. I'm interested in the, in the way the restaurants are in general in terms of their business. 
I recently, I might be doing something with a restaurant that's part of uh, a casino. Oh, and cool. what the interesting thing is, is the direction of the restaurant. You know, when you're talking about these small restaurants that really like their, their margins are very small and then they're making their money off the bars. Right. You, you, it's a different ball game when you're talking about the casinos. Because the oh, casinos, yeah. they don't give Offset. a fuck. <laughs> they don't give a fuck. Although they don't give a fuck. Apparently that is changing, though, in uh, Las Vegas. It used to be that there was just essentially free food and, and sort of glitzy free food, lobsters and roast beef and whatever. But apparently that's changing. Um, but I'm curious to see what your project and, and the food – is this on the East Coast? Well, no, I'll tell you. I mean, I'll tell you. I, um, I'm not going to tell you the chef is, and I can tell you the casino, but basically the idea would be, and this is one of the ideas about the, these casinos, is the casinos own the restaurants, and they license the, the chef names, like Gordon right. Ramsay or all these guys. That, you know, when they have a Gordon Ramsay restaurant, Gordon Ramsay isn't cutting checks to pay the mortgage. You know, he's not paying yeah. rent. You know, he's, he's get, he gets his likeness, you know, he gets involved with the menu or he gets involved with, you know, the way the service should be or the colors and stuff like that. But when it comes down to it, it's like the, the, the restaurant is owned by the And the operated casino. by the... Owned and operated by the casino. And um, all, those, all those restaurants and casinos are unionized. Which makes mm-hmm. it very difficult to cook. Actually, Tony, my business partner Tony, when he before he was the, the the before he was executive chef at Oriole, he was the corporate chef all over the place, and he used to go to Vegas and help train the staff. And he used to say how hard it was because the restaurant workers were all unionized, and it became very difficult to be flexible with the cooking styles because it was just very very difficult. Very, what do you, I, I don't understand why them being unionized would be problematic. Because there was timing. There was time of when you take breaks and when you do this oh. and when you do that. And there was there was almost there was almost like no. I mean, I don't know the extent of it, but it was almost more along the lines of uh, there wasn't as much. Uh, you weren't worried about losing your job as fast. Right. I mean, you this know? is one of the horrible things about being in kitchens is that you know there's no opportunity to pee. For right. several hours, right. you know, you're not supposed to drink at your station if the health department catches you. Um, it's a problem. However, if you don't drink at your station, you're going to die. Drink so, water. Water, water, right. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you make know, me yeah. think it's like, a, you know, like <laughs> no. A... <laughs> no, water, because uh, it's 120 degrees. Um, you know, like that would be, to me, I almost can't understand how that can be unionized. You know, can a union say this kitchen cannot be 120, this grill station cannot be 120 degrees? I'm like, well, that's kind of how grill stations are. Uh, I don't know how, how does that work? How does that work? I don't know, but I just remember Tony be coming back from Las Vegas being very frustrated at the fact that he wasn't, he, there were, he was, there were, his hands were tied in a lot of situations Mm. and it was very hard to get the kind of food and service that they wanted because it was just, it took a little bit longer and it was just very, everything was, but the, so in regards to what I'm doing is, uh, or maybe doing or may not be doing, I've been down this road before until there's like a deal sign and a check send. I, you know, you don't, I don't buy, I don't buy anything. You yeah. know? Like, like all of a sudden I have to look at all these fiber lasers and, you know, CNC machines and Tony's telling me don't look at them anymore until we get a little bit yeah, right. and, and more of it. But the idea would be is like this, the, the, um, the way the the casino works is they get these really high end uh, 
uh, gamblers to come in and they'll mm. book them. They'll, they'll, they'll be coming in in a couple of weeks or something like that. So they'll get them a high level table at the restaurant or they'll have like a, their own concierge or, and then, then they'll have like gift baskets. And the idea was to have a personalized steak knife that I Ooh. designed with the chef. And then what we would have to do is we would basically get like a list every week or every two weeks or as fast as we can. And then we would personalize them. So it would be like it would be a very interesting operation because it would change the way I think about how I make things, and it would be give me a little bit more of a um, manual. It would give me the kind of discipline. It would be a test of discipline that I like. So when you say personalized, what do you mean? I mean, like they're going to be the same knives, right? They'll have their name on it. Okay, and how are you? How would you get the name on the knife? Well, uh, there's a couple ways. One is, is nowadays that there are uh, what's called a fiber laser. And basically what it'll do is it'll etch into your steel, like, I don't know exactly, into it, like a burn into a controlled burn or something like that. Mm-hmm. You basically, you write in your computer what you want in the font and everything like that, or the design, you upload it to your, you know, the CNC computer, and then it just, you know, you can go how deep or the color or how whatever. But then there's also something what I'm trying to do is actually in this town, we have this company called Bantam Tools, which is this really great organization. They're making CNC uh, routers, desktop oh. routers. And the owner is a really good dude. And I know him. His name is Bree Pettis. And he actually started, he was the fir- one of the first guys to start 3D printing. Uh, home 3D printing. I think it's. I think that's right. Um, he, and he became very famous for that. And then he, I think he sold his part of the business. And now he started this little CNC desktop router company. And I was kind of in more in the mood of using as local as possible. Right. So I'm thinking about getting a guy. You know, his CNC router might just be able to handle doing um, engraving names and stuff like that. So, but would would you would they want to send? Would you want to send knives every week? It would be. We're getting waiting for more information to come back. I didn't say no yet, but it is something that like I like the idea of being. I like to make the mess. Like (laughs) I told them, you can't call me. You need the knife in Las Vegas tomorrow. Yeah. You know, but like we would try to figure out ways in which to have stuff pre-made, and then I would have them ready to go. And then you know, maybe once a week we get a list saying how many knives you need sent out with the different names on them, and then we just put them, knock them out. It's something that would be very difficult, but at the same time, I feel like it would be a lot of fun. And the interesting thing was is what the chef said is like, look, he's like, they, you know, you don't just don't think that the just because it's from a casino. That they're not going to be, you know, mm-hmm. that it's going to be, you know, and you know, a fire hydrant full of money. It's going to be, you know, they they are watching every dollar, and it was it was one of those things that is it, it is interesting because the direction of this hotel they don't give a fuck. They don't. I mean, I shouldn't say they don't give a fuck. I mean, they're not depending on the restaurant right. to pay the bills. I mean, the slot machine probably one slot machine <laughs> outside the restaurant is the one that probably <laughs> pays for the lights, you know, every month, you know. Right. I but know. It, what I think it, it's cool. Well, it would it makes it interesting because the concept of the, the 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 importance of what the restaurant is. You know, during the pandemic, all these restaurants were having to like I, the thought of like if you can't even fill your restaurant normally, and then all of a sudden the You're state right. says you can have fifty percent, and then meanwhile they want you know they're ready to they're ready to get steak knives for their big customers. You know, they don't money's not really an object because they're just gonna. I find I find the whole. I find it very interesting just how these different restaurants operate. 
Yeah, no, it's very, it's very interesting. And it's, it's, I think also, um, you know, your experience at the rainbow room where you were sort of really intrigued by debauchery, I think casinos are like 10 times what you experience there debauch wise. I mean, just so much money, so much, uh, they call it gaming, but nobody's having fun. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's a spooky place. Um, but they do an excess, you know, every, all, all the menus are excessive, you know, it's full of caviar and lobster and whatever. It's this whole world that is debauched and kind of fun. Um, you know, I, I, I encourage you to work in that. Do you think that's the reason why, um, Hunter Thompson's book about Las Vegas was, uh, at le- you know, uh, was as popular as it was? Uh, you know, I think it was popular because of Hunter Thompson's writing style. I, you know, he was this consummate stylist. Uh, I read his books and I'm just like, oh, just the, the, the talent is painful to read, uh, because he tells a story like no one else. He uses language and like no one else. And, um, and I think you know, Las Vegas is a magically perverse place. Yeah. Uh, so it was a perfect match. You know, uh, Hunter Thompson and the Hells Angels, perfect match. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was such an interesting book. And the, the, when we were talking, you were talking about before is how he inserted himself mm-hmm. as a journalist. It really was quite bizarre. It was, I would imagine that in any other time or any other place, he would have just been thrown out. Oh, yeah. It was, it was completely not done. You know, journalists were, you know, observers and they worked in a, a neutral voice. They weren't expressive. You just, you know, just the facts, man. Uh, and he didn't do that. You know, he was in the story, often making the story. Um, and, causing all manner of chaos and then just reporting that, which I find hilarious. I, I think his best book was Hell's Angels. I, I hate that to say book. it. It was scary. It was hard. It was scary. <laughs> it was, scary. It, was it was really scary because that was the first time, I mean, he embedded himself with the Hell's Angels. That was his first yeah. major book, right? Yeah, I think it was. And he, he was an embed, uh, but, he, you know, he was provoking them um and you know i think he at one point he was surrounded by them locked in his car but he didn't have the keys he couldn't drive away he was just sort of you know locked the car manually and was stuck in his car because they were going to kill him um you know and he witnessed all sorts of horrific things during that uh but you know one thing that is interesting about that book is he his whole life had this kind of speed freak motorcycle thing where he would take his motorcycle out and go 120, no helmet. Um, and I think that maybe the Hells Angels touched him a little bit, yeah. you know, and that he became this, you know, sort of insanely risk taking motorcyclist. How do you, when you we talk about Tony Bourdain, talk about Hunter Thompson. 
I see a lot of your in your writing. I see a lot of that, and I don't know how to. I don't know how to express. I want to say the genes of it, or the 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 long the long echo of that, or the DNA, or something like that. One of the things about your writing that I like the most, and I kind of wish you did more of, was your letter letters from the editor <laughs> in, the, in the in the edible in your all the edible uh, the edible magazines. That is just free writing. So that is that is. That's my idea of fun. You know, uh, often I'm trying to tell somebody else's story. I'm trying to tell your story. I'm trying right. to tell, you know, somebody else's story. And there's, I am not in that story. I, I don't have the ego of a Hunter S. Thompson. So I'm just there taking notes about what you say. Uh, but, but that's about me. You know, the, the editor's notes are about me. And the, I'm going to read you. I, I've, I've read them all. Uh, and I want to read you one that I think was... The way you describe—I mean, there, there's three of them, I and mean, I'm not going to read all of them. But there was there was uh, there was one that you did about the B-52s and having people over at a part for a party, right. which was great. Um, and then there was this one that was about uh, you guys did an, an episode about uh, the legalization of marijuana. And here's just a small excerpt. Um, here's what really worries me: I worry that the 50 years of underground weed culture will be urban outfitted. You know, decontextualized, denatured, and shackled between the quotation marks, like the t- like the Smith's T-shirt purchased it by mall kids who don't know what any of it means, but suspect but suspect that it might be cool. Okay, so I no longer wear my Smith's T-shirt because a they don't fit me anymore, and b Morrissey lost his mind. But that doesn't mean I don't want to see him see some little Starbucks sucker wearing one as he grooves to the Jonas Brothers through his earbuds. To quote Polly from The Sopranos, it's the the rape of the culture, specifically my culture. I'm just saying, before we go screaming into the future, let's appreciate where we've been. Well, Julia I had... fucking Saxon right there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I had been sucking down a lot of Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got, I got one more Hunter S. Thompson one that you've been sucking down. I got a... But there's a... There's a I mean, uh, here's, a, here's another one. This one... Uh, just... I got to find it. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was from... Uh, I don't remember which one this was from. This was like... Um, basically... You've invited all these people to your house, and you say, uh, "Oh God, I, I fucking read these last night, and I just laughed because it's like <laughs> the, the doorbell rings. You're brawless wearing your house shoes, and I might be projecting your holy leggings that are full of cat hair. You open the door and blink at the porch light glare. Oh, they say that they're just dropping in, but howling their savage hoo hoo hoos. The horde displaces the cat to raid your refri- your fridge while casually insulting the aroma of your dinner." Jesus Christ. You yeah. paint this incredible picture. Sorry about that brawless thing. Well, <laughs> you know, it didn't I mean, but I mean, but that's I mean, that's when I when I when I was in college and I was reading Hunter Thompson for the first time and my and my friends were using those very, you know, uh viscous viscous words and just kind of this like you know you're getting all fired up you you know your lips are already going you know past <laughs> your teeth and you're 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 talking through your teeth in this very you know it's it's i wonder where that all comes from like where that came from and how we decided that that was acceptable I like don't that know. we liked it i mean obviously i think that for for bourdain i think that he got lucky because He's he a was all writer though he, his his i uh, be between you and me 
I think that his nonfiction was not as good. His nonfiction was better than his oh, fiction. Oh, yeah. Have you ever I thought his the, fiction um, was terrible. Did you ever? Yeah, his fiction wasn't very good. Uh, you know, he was doing these murder mysteries. Uh, uh, one was Bamboo something, Gone Bamboo. Yeah. Um, and I read them, and they were very practicey. I mean, he was practicing. That's almost like his juvenilia. You know, he, he was learning how to use language. Um, I think when he wrote about his own life, he really dropped into gear, and he had something to say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was, he was also a really elegant writer. I mean, yeah. he, he created pictures, you know. You knew what he was talking about. Well, you've—I mean, you've done that with your writing. I really hope. I'm kind of hoping. I, I t- you know, you and I talk off the, off the, off this thing, and I really hope you're going to be doing more writing that's not just cooking food. Because I feel like I know that you have, you know, you did an, you've, every one of your editor letters to the letters from the editor are just wonderful, and I can tell when I read them <laughs> that, that that's so the most fun you're having. It is the most fun I'm having. I know? can tell. <laughs> but you know, I also love writing about people like you. Um, you know, I'm, I, I do kind of love writing about everybody that I write about. I don't, I don't write about people that I don't like, um, which is really wonderful now. So I like it both, you know, I ultimately, maybe I will do some, you know, non-journalistic work, uh, if I can get the time because it is fun, but, um, I'm really enjoying writing about the people in the food world, you know? Mm. I want you to do more of those letters from the editor. I love them. I love them. I loved, I loved all three. The three that I read that I found, I love them. And I was just like, Julie's having a good time right there. She's, really, you know, she's chewing on those words. You can feel that. Even when I was reading it, I was getting all I was charged up just reading it. It was just oh, so great. You're inspiring me. I have another. I have to do that this week. I have to oh, no. Qu- I mean, there's only, they're from like two years ago, of course. I mean, you have, you have to do some sort of pandemic, some pandemic oh. writing. It's too close. You know, I, I live in the town that was, you know, the first uh, the first close down that was in the near, in the daily news. They called it New Rock Hell. Oh, you're from New Rochelle. That's yeah. right. You're ground zero. I, I, I could look at the boundary of the um, quarantine zone. I could walk into my front yard and five houses down was the boundary. Wait a second. Yep. Now, for those you, for those of you following along in in two thousand in two thousand twenty, I think I'm thinking it's like, I feel like it was February, March, or April. No, it was, March, March. It was March 12th, and I know this for a fact because I was on this kind of blitz in Manhattan eating for some story or something, and uh, I stayed overnight at the White Hotel. And we ate at La Crocodile because I got actually this, um, I got a warning from somebody close to the source that Keith Wells was going to review La Crocodile and it was going to be a rave. So if you wanted to get in, get in now. So I did. Um, and uh, that was the morning that they closed down that section of my town. The Metro D of La Crocodile came out and said, who is, you know, who's Julia Sexton? And somehow the town that I lived in came up and honestly, the whole restaurant shut up immediately and was listening and, and kind of drawing away. 
<laughs> were you like the, the victim? I, you were like the ex. You were like the ex patient, patient X. Yeah, coming was, from New Rochelle. Yeah, it was like I was a zombie, and they were all kind of you know drawing away from me in fear, and I was like, oh god, I got cooties. Well, so wait, a so New Rochelle was the first city in New York that became the first hot the first zone, outbreak. the first wave. Yeah, it was the, the first, first wave. Outbreak. It so was this... what? Who? How'd they track you down? Uh, it was in my open table um, profile. I think where I lived was in my open table profile. And then, um, they, what did they say to you? Um, what do you mean the 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 Maitre D? The Maitre D was like, you know, he double checked the town that I was from, and he said, "Are you from New Rochelle?" And the restaurant became instantly silent. Everybody was listening. And kind of being horrified, and I realized because in that morning the Daily News had a cover splashed that said "New Rock Hell," and uh, uh, drew a circle around the first quarantine zone in the U.S. And that was five houses from where I live. Oh my god! What was that like? It was bananas. You know, my brother happened to be passing through and was like, you know, do I have to get through the army to, to get to you? Like, no, it's an imaginary line, Chris. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it was a very scary time. I remember he had a, my brother had to pick something up for me and I put it down in, in the driveway and backed up the driveway. And then he came forward and picked it up. You know, it was just a really fearful time. Jeez. Yeah. So what's going? So how, how does it? So now let's just kind of change gears. What's it like at Hudson at the Hudson Edibles, the Edible magazines? What is it like being an editor in chief of four magazines? Uh, it's busy. Um, you know, we are growing really quickly, and we are having, you know, more pages, more stories. Uh, we have a new designer, so she's got a lot of ideas. Um, so it's just very busy. Uh, you know, even though we are a quarterly, we have a very small staff. So everybody is pretty much, you know, working very hard to get each each issue out. So it's exciting though. And it's fun. And I really enjoy making magazines. I realized. Really? I like, I like working with the artists. You know, we, we hired, uh, we have this great collection of photographers. Our designer is really cool. She does a lot of great effects. We just hired a comic book artist, you know, to do a story. It's just, it's, you, I think you would like it visually as well as, uh, the writing. Well, I love your magazines because you put me on the cover. I mean, how can I, I mean, my narcissism, you, you, you hit, me, hit me right between the eyes. You hit the narcissist right between the eyes. You love that the first sight after that. such an, an amazing photograph. This is when you were working in that shed in your backyard yeah. and you just dominated it. Um, and that photograph, uh, Damon Jacoby took that photograph. It is an amazing photograph. And by the way, that is that issue we have almost none of left. You know, generally we try to save a box or two for like an archive. For some reason, that di- that issue disappeared, and I think it was because that cover was just so compelling. 
Look at you. Look at you buttering me up some more. You, you, get, you can get me to do anything at this point. I am, I'm a sucker for flattery. Are you kidding me? I am terrible. terrible. You sell magazines. Um, I don't think yeah. so. I, think, I mean, when you're not, we're not paying for them, I mean, it's easy to sell. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was say you know, that. I mean, Jesus Christ. magazine. <laughs> I mean, come on. Don't make me sound like a, a moving, moving product here. Moving I mean, you said, people need to, you know, they, they, they need to, like, put, their, put something in their parrot cages, you know? Sure. I mean, come on. So what's the, what's next for you? What's what's well, going on now? What are you working on now? I am working on so much right now. Uh, I can't tell you about the stories because um, we get scooped as a as a quarterly, right. and it makes me want to stab people in the neck. <laughs> um, but they get you know like sort of the the hint of what I'm working on, and then you know put a story out the next day um, that. Uh, scoops us, and that makes me insane. Why but are creative people such thieves? Yeah, across gross. the board. Has anybody ever stolen any of your designs? Um, do you want to talk about it? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been stolen from from one of the most. I'm not going to say too much, but I've been stolen from by one of the uh, very, very popular celebrity chef. Bad, but not uh... to be the point. Not bad enough that I'm going to make a stink about it. But like it in a couple of years, it'll be a more of a funny story. But uh, it Is was it a, the one we both know. Uh, no. Okay. No, no, it is not the one we both know this person, but we don't have never met this person. Okay. No, I know what you're talking about. No, yeah. that, that, that's not the case. But this was like, uh, I've been stolen from, I mean, here's the problem. The problem with being creative is you can either say, okay, well, you're just going to, I'm going to let you steal from me. I'm going to fight. Or you're going to say, if I have to hang my hat on this, then it's my own fault. So yeah. I've really tried to use the stuff that I've done in the past you know, the arts, the art degree and like color theory and thinking about things and talking about things and doing constant evolutions that I can kind of start to push myself away from a lot of these guys, which is what I've had to do. Um, The interesting thing about makers and cooks, they're very, very similar. The difference really is, is that when you learn how to become a cook and get involved with the restaurant business, you have to learn to be, you have to learn to uh, accept and need the mechanization of your process. You have to be able to, to, uh, you have to be able to uh, use other people. You have to be able to use, you know, the constructs of what you have. You have certain deadlines. So you, mm-hmm. you, you, you have to be kind of more legit. You can't just free ball it, you know, <laughs> versus like makers, you know, you don't usually have a deadline or if you do, it's not the biggest deal in the world. But the, the, there's, a, there's a definite confluence between these creative people, and a lot of it is thieves. I, Tony's told me stories of, like, you know, chefs who get mad because they, their vinaigrette got stolen. Oh, you my know, God. The, it's so the, rife. And in cooking, it is so appalling where, you know, ideas are stolen, styles are stolen, actual recipes are stolen. Yeah. You know, and it's and swapped around and it's so aggravating. But, you know, as you say, if you're a creative person, you've already done that. You know, you're on to something else. So, yeah, <laughs> well, you have, have to. Yeah, you, they can have that one knife design or they can have that one recipe, but you, you know, that was, you know, five designs ago and that was, you know, 10 recipes ago. But what this means to me, especially speaking to you and speaking to makers and cooks and people who are creative, you must learn how to 
speak about your work and understand mm. your direction and be able to talk about it. Because then you're all of a sudden you, you'll be able to think about things and you'll be able to express yourself and you'll be able to wrap your ideas in the words and the, in the direction that you want it to go. And then all of a sudden you're not just like saying I'm doing something because it's cool. There's a ton of knife makers. You know, the interesting thing about the <clears throat> knife making game is a lot of most of them, because it's not easy to do, um, it's not easy to learn how to become a knife maker, except for you can do it on YouTube. There's not as many schools, but you can learn, get the free information on how to cut a knife out and kind of grind it and how to heat treat it. And the, all the steps are there. Right. Um, and you can slowly, slowly learn how to do it on your, you know, on your own at home, but it's, you can't learn how to take these real evolutions on, on, on of honesty. You know, these real evolutions of your own work and to critique them yourself and think what you like and think of what you don't like and then make changes and stuff like that. And then to have a very strong understanding of what you're doing. So then when somebody you know, questions your authenticity, mm. you're able to show the receipts. Right. But do, do you, you know? think because you come out of art um, and uh, did that inform that opinion of yours? I mean, you know, um, I. A lot of chefs have a hard time talking about their work because they are not particularly verbal people. You know, they work, they express themselves in other ways. Um, but as an artist, you must have had to deal with critiques and, and you know, you, you had to speak about your work um, articulately your whole life, right? Well, not, I'm not that articulate. But You're pretty I, but articulate. You, you had to learn how to defend yourself yeah. verbally. Yeah. And you had to be able to – I thought when I was going to be an art major, I thought I was just going to be like, I'm going to just do some paintings and I'm going to fool around and then you know, smoke some weed and do some <laughs> more paintings. But then all of a sudden critique comes along and then oh. not only are you being you – know, you're, you're, the questions that you're being asked aren't whether or not it's art or not. Or it, it's more along the lines of have you, what's your direction and have you mm. done all the things – to justify the direction to make us all believe that you did a good job or not. So it's it's being able to kind of like see that and, and then listen to what people are saying. And you take opinions and throw opinions out. But if like, you know, a lot of times the more the more interesting things that you learn are is my direction is my direction clear is it or am i is there something in the way that the the the, the viewer is unable to, to see and right. that's what i used to talk about when i when i hear people say, i'm not so good at talking ah maybe you should be good at talking or maybe you should <laughs> practice or try i think yeah. that a lot of times a lot of people um, give themselves these outs. Like, I'm not good at this. Or I'm not good at writing. I get these fucking DMs from knife makers that are, like, pathetic. And it's like, it doesn't really matter, and I understand what they're saying, but at the same time, it's just like, I hope you're not writing this to your customers. Because then all of a sudden, they're not going to be able to understand. What they're going to say, what am I, who is it? What? And I'm yeah. not saying, I'm not, it is a little elitist, but at the same time, I feel like it's very important to have a good, uh, good understanding and uh, understanding of how to talk about your work because then it's all of a sudden hard. i don't think it is i think that i think it's just a question of one of the interesting things about knife makers that are different about cook than different than cooks or makers in general is they're so solitary a lot of times they're listening to this they're listening to this on a friday while yeah. they're doing something boring podcasts are great because it is mind control i've always said it was mind control it is but your words are, go, are writing over their brain they're and they're able to listen to this and do whatever they're doing or you know not hurt themselves and it's different than TV or I'm keeping you we're keeping them company but when you're alone by yourself you really need to be kind of thinking about your work 
You mm-hmm. need to be thinking about what your next step is. And actually, I spend two hours a day. I walk the dogs in the morning and at night. And I, I don't have the phone. And I don't have anything in my ears. And I just think about this podcast. I think about talking to you. Right. But I also think about the work. I think about my, my, my designs. I think about decisions I should be making. And why, I should, why I'm going to stop doing this. Or why I'm going to start doing that. Or things that I think. I, that's how you create these evolutions. Is to be able to think think. It's not to express yourself just to express yourself, but it's to have these really logical progressions and understandings of where you're coming from. But cooks don't have that. No, they don't because they're, you know, they're rarely working in a vacuum. You know, they have a chef, they have an owner, they have, uh, you know, uh, budgets, you know, um, you know, they, they have to do a lot of, um, compromises. Right. Uh, but, you know, when you're talking, one of the funny things, I remember getting into this, like, ongoing argument with you about whether your knives are art or not. And you just saying you walking the dogs, thinking about evolution, makes that art. Not evolution, like, you know, <laughs> where do we come from? No, I'm talking about the of steps. Your work, of your work. But... <laughs> I, I, here, listen to me. We're going to have this argument again. No, it's fine. <laughs> Julia, you know, because I, I actually, I sent out a, I sent out a, knife makers are very quiet with me because I say it's not art. The interesting thing when we talk about evolutions, we talked about the first knife I made that Dave Debari has. If you take that based on what I'm doing now, <laughs> the broad sword. there, there are, there are just, there are years of small evolutions. Right. I still don't think it's art. I think that Why, knives... because you replicate it again and again? No, I, I don't... Th- I, I just don't... I, you, I could also make the point that because I say they're not art, they're not art. You know, it's like if I wanted to say right. that they're art, and I, here's the reason why. I'll give you, you want some art show, school bullshit right now? I'll give you art school bullshit. Yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have some art school bullshit to swing <laughs> back at me, feel free to rip this one. I off. have art, art the, school bullshit. I was an art, you know, I did. I'm, art I'm talking to the listeners who are waiting to fucking catch me. Here's what you say to me the, the knives are directional objects. When you first see them, regardless of whatever you, whatever you think, your, your brain immediately knows which is the handle and which is the sharp part. You also have a direction. You have a direction in the form. You mm. know which way it's to work. To the point where your brain automatically, even if you didn't have the vocabulary to what a knife is, your brain automatically knows where your hand is supposed to go and then the motion that the work is supposed to be, just because you can understand that. Then you worry about the direction of the knife. Why do I do a satin finish? Because I like the lines to go from the heel to the tip. Tip. And that that those lines, what those lines do is it actually draws your eye in that direction of the spine. And if your spine has got a movement, it's got a little bit of movement. Maybe you have the lines. Some guys say to me, I like the lines are good. If you have a satin finish, that makes the eye move in this direction of this knife. And then all of a sudden, now you have this contrast and a relationship between the handle and the steel. What's the relationship? Is there supposed to be a relationship? And how do they play within each other? And then that's you want to start talking about art. That's how you make knives talk about art is you're actually thinking about it and giving it an understanding. But at the same time, I could bring my best knife down to the MoMA and say I'm ready for a show and they're going to be like go down the cafeteria they're right. waiting for you it's like it's not going to happen you know? so are you saying that because an object is functional it's not art <sighs> no i'm not saying that 
I'm saying in this case, my intention is not for these to be hung on the wall. My intention is for these to be used, and I don't see them as art. There are some design qualities that could qualify as being artistic, but mm. these these knives aren't the the these particular knives. If I made, I've had some ideas to make sculpture, and the knives are actually like bending in on itself. Then all of a sudden you're telling a story, this is an unusable knife, or this right. knife can't be used, and why, and let's discuss why, and why, well, who is to be the, the user of a, a knife that can't be used, and you can kind of go do that, you know, like that, uh, that, uh, that bullshit where you where you you're making the point, but at the same time, it's like most of the guys I talk to say, "I'm a knife artist." Okay, tell me about your art, and I and they say, "Well, I just make them because they're cool." That's just not good enough for me. That's basically yeah. what I'm saying. You've gotten a, me hot into the collar. I know this one is very provocative for you. I don't understand why. It's you know why you don't understand why is because I don't talk about abortion. I don't talk about politics, and this is a very easy, con- very minimal, controversial, controversial thing that I can talk about, and usually gets people angry. And, oh really? But it's like I don't know <laughs> one's life. So no, one's, no, 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 not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I, I think that I think it's great to talk about, and I, I basically having you on has been a delight because i respect you. i enjoy your writing Aww, when you the article kind. you wrote about me came out i read my wife is a big reader she's a really big reader when she wrote when she read the article she says julia is really good and Aww. it was really you painted this picture that had the you had the undertones of hunter thompson and you it was very actually the surprising part about the whole thing was how accurate everything was like we talked for two hours <laughs> and then everything you wrote was extraordinarily accurate like that's surprising to me i mean meanwhile so westchester magazine doesn't oh. do anything and all they say is they call me george fader and he's got oh. knives ready to go you know but at the same time it's just like <laughs> we won't say that's all i'm gonna say but at the same time i just want you to know how much i appreciate you as a person and, and i think that your writing style gives me joy that is the kindest thing that you've ever said that is very nice i've complimented you before your writing you have i'm a huge (laughs) fan i'm a huge fan of your writing your writing is i don't think that i think that i think that the 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 position that you're in is very tough and i think that um i want to see more letters from the editor from you that's i wish they gave me more space for them they're so short dude (laughs) <laughs> Let me make a phone call. Let me make a phone. Call. We'll make phone calls. I, the, you, you, that was. There's so much fun. There's so much fun. <laughs> That's so nice. I, you know, I'm convinced nobody reads them. Uh, I read it. I just read it to my audience for Christ's sake. That is so funny because I'm like, I never read letters to the editor. <laughs> you know, I didn't the, either. I would I write just... to the 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 TOC, the table of con- contents, and you know, look for the stories, the pages. I would always skip that front. Here's the, the here's the last se- the last segment. This is from uh, the last licks. You wrote last licks. A couple of us were already on shore, shimmying into the sandy road, clothes under our towels. Soon I'm alone in the ocean on a nearly deserted September beach. I look over my shoulder and spot one. I start kicking my arms making jerky bent elbow padded motions as I paddling motions as I continue to look behind me. I have to hurry as I paddle into the sucking trough that precedes the big wave it occurs to me that i should probably dive under the lifeguards have packed it in for the season fucking julia <laughs> sexton god damn it <laughs> they 
Thank you. <laughs> I love it. Julia Sexton is the is an awesome writer. She's also the editor in chief of Edible Hudson, Edible Westchester, Edible Manhattan, Edible Brooklyn. I don't think you do a lot on Instagram, so I'm not going to give you. I mean, unless you have anything you want to promote, I don't know. Uh, not really. <laughs> All right. I want to see more. I, I want to see more. I want to see more Julia Sexton articles because they're always so much fun. And I hope when we get less germaphobic you and i can go get some dinner again because every time we've gone we've had some fun we had fun (laughs) we had fun all right guys listen julie is the best and i appreciate you guys being here next week we're gonna have a two-parter Next week, uh, next week we're gonna have the Modern Forge guys in. They, and actually, Julia, you met when you came to my first hammer. Oh yeah, right? that was fun. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Julia took an epic picture. Maybe I'll post it. it <laughs> of all these guys, you all know it was a very, very epic picture. But we're gonna be at Maker Camp uh, the eighth through the eleventh, and the Modern Forge guys are gonna come on the podcast, and we're gonna do a pregame. So we're gonna talk about our expectations and what's gonna happen, and all the shit we have to bring, and all the things we're expecting. And then the following week, we're gonna do a, a post game. The guys are gonna come back. We're gonna do a post game of the show, and it's gonna be a lot of fun. So go. I don't know who you find. I don't think you find. Follow, follow all the edibles. Follow yeah. the edibles. You know, give some support to those guys. They do a great job. It's a great resource, especially in the New York City area. And uh, so thanks for my sponsors. And Julia, thank you very much for coming on. This was so much fun. I'm so glad. I told you it was me fun. We get we had every <laughs> half an hour of misery with the computers, but we, I knew it was going to be fun because we always have fun. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.